This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Crazy Games We Have Run. John Tyler. The debut of Tell Me More. And the International Order of St. Hubertus versus the Marfa Lights. It's once again time for the Preamble Hut, the hut in which we deal with the uh, thinnest, slimmest bits of business that we have to deal with at the top of the show, and one of these is a big pile of thanks. Ken, who do we have to thank? We have to thank the voters for the Golden Geek Award. So these are the voters at RPGGeek.com, and we'd like to thank all of you for once again selecting Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff for Best Podcast. We are very grateful. Thanks a lot. And very honored. Yes, indeed. Uh, secondly, I think there's an expectation that there would be some sort of uh, remark uh, about the uh, death of Rob Ford, the former Toronto mayor. Friend of the show. Yes. We've, of course, uh, covered Rob Ford a lot on the show, but I think there's no real purpose in doing a whole 15-minute further segment, except, uh, you know, I think this is a time really when your uh, feelings go out to the family at uh, what has got to be a really wrenching time. Right, his, his, his loved ones. Uh, none of the things that I've said in the past about Rob Ford have been made untrue by his uh, untimely death, but I don't think there's much uh, point in uh, rehashing them at this point except to uh, note his passing. So it's not like the Ford family listens to this show, but if they did, of course. But if they would, did. We would extend them our condolences. The Unknown Army's role-playing game is kickstarting for a new edition right now. And Atlas Games needs your help to make it the greatest new edition of Unknown Armies it can possibly be. Unknown Armies is an occult RPG about broken people conspiring to fix the world. As obsessive denizens of the supernatural underground, you scheme to bend reality before reality bends you. Find out how far you'll go to get what you want. Battle forces fighting tooth and nail to reshape the world into something you'll despise. Master or be mastered by shock gauges, the game's mechanical spine. Each PC can suffer emotional trauma in areas like helplessness, violence, or the unnatural. Any of these can harden you or break you. The occult and unnatural in Unknown Armies are like a secret world that Tim Powers and James Elroy might conspire to create. Your obsessions and sacrifices define reality, but only if you're willing to risk it all. What would you risk to change the world? Your friends? Your family? Your sanity? Your life? Magic finds a way to ask the very most from you until you change the world or are left with nothing. Unknown Armies was created by Greg Stolze and John Tynes. Originally released in 1998, it became an instant classic. Now comes a new edition more ambitious than any other with... Meaty changes to the Unknown Army's cosmos. Substantial revision to the rules of play. Keyboard curling updates for the internet age. Shudder before the fervid majesty of its prestige format. A three-book set with all the awesome stretch goals and add-ons you've come to expect. But Greg, John, and Atlas Games need your help to make this new edition happen. Search Kickstarter for Unknown Armies. Or follow the link at atlas-games.com. Back Unknown Armies today. And change your reality. Change everyone's reality. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon supporter Ross Ireland asks Ken and Robin, 
How about a segment on crazed games you have run or played in? Okay, so Ross is taking advantage of our special Patreon uh, elite access plan for asking questions uh, for uh, Ken and Robin. And uh, when I think of crazy games, the f- uh, I think all of our craziest games are the games that we uh, ran as young sprouts uh, back when uh, uh, the Peter Frampton uh, album was not up on the wall, but it was just sort of lying around in a stack next to the Partridge Family album and was still relatively new. And the shag carpet was not an ironic retro reference, but it was also uh, just a carpet that we thought was cool. It was carpet we were not allowed to spill things on because it was nice carpet. Yes, and, and impossible to clean. Um, right. So I think back to the times uh, when I was a uh, a young D&D player in uh, late uh, grade school and early high school. And uh, so all of my friends were like... Uh, uh, we were like 12, 13, 14, and uh, we had one outlier in the group, and that was my younger brother, who was five years younger than the rest of us. The rest of the group at that time, uh, basically, uh, if paranoia had existed at that time, that would have been the game for them, because they were very easily tempted into inter-party infighting that would lead to their characters killing each other. And of course, since this was the days of AD&D 1, uh, what you had to do when you uh, got killed off uh, was you had to roll another character and start off from scratch at first level, regardless of the levels of any of the other characters in, in the group. And rightfully so, if you're killing each other off, because, uh, you know, <laughs> you, you're not going to get killed by orcs, but you, each other, you're a threat to each other. That's right. So my brother slowly accumulated power and levels and goodies around his character, because when he uh, noticed that my uh, teenage pals were getting in that uh, fighting and killing each other PvP mode, he would just sit there very, very quietly. And so he never uh, got engaged in any of these uh, fights. And so that eventually he had a 13th level ranger with uh, plus five armor, plus five shield, and everybody else was usually a first or second level character. And <laughs> and also those in ad those were the days when you would have vast lockers full of treasure that you would accumulate. Uh, so, you know, he had 130,000 gold pieces. Well, to a first level character, I mean, 25 gold pieces is a big deal because you can uh, outfit yourself. You can become a much more powerful character just by spending money at low levels. So uh, my brother got to enjoy constantly being petitioned for his imaginary money uh, by much older kids, uh, by the cool kids, and always shutting them down. He would never, never let them have any of this uh, gold, which meant nothing to him. Uh, would uh, He couldn't use it to accrue any more power to his character, but he had the emotional power of being able to say no to teenagers. So I think that's... Uh, and that's the best kind of gold there exactly. is. Exactly. So that's one of my most entertaining dysfunctional play stories. Ken? Um, well, I'm not sure that Ross wants to hear about our most dysfunctional games. I, you said I, crazy. Crazy, yes. That's pretty crazy, wouldn't you say? Well, I mean, crazy I think and it's, or dysfunctional. I, I, what do you I, think it's, I think it's crazy that you didn't get together and dry gulch that 13th level ranger and gut him as he slept. I think they that couldn't. That, he was 13th level. 13th level. All right. Well, I'm just saying that uh, if you'd put your heads together, you probably could have done he it. He slept in his armor. He slept he in his armor. He a giant armor class. Well, that's why you saved the rust monster, <laughs> just to keep it around, just in case. Um, anyhow, uh, no, I think that uh, in terms of crazy games, my early games were pretty straightforward D&D. I mean, they were, they were adolescent because that's what we were, but they weren't 
any crazier qua crazy than in the other game. I've uh, many times mentioned my wandering away from the table and coming back to find that my co-DM had somehow allowed all the players to get Vorpal Swords and Pegasi, but that's more of a, a momentary lapse of reason than it's an a managerial conflict crazy the game. Of the world. Um, and, and my Call of Cthulhu game, while it did in fact end with the nuking of Riley, uh, with, uh, a atom bomb built by Professor Moriarty, uh, dropped from a Zeppelin, I don't think that that's crazy. I think that that's perfectly legitimate. I think you should absolutely try that. If you've got Professor Moriarty's atom bomb and Riley is rising, you know, you really only have one choice. Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. And the, the, the lead up to that was mostly pre-published Chaosium adventures, which, are in and of themselves not necessarily sane or straightforward, but were, you know, professionally vetted by grownups. And so therefore they can't possibly be crazy, crazy. No, it's only once I started just doing things that my games really become bananas, uh, such as when my players uh, volunteered to play in a GURPS cabal game. Uh, and we decided mutually for reasons that I forget to set the game in Philadelphia in 1800 and the f- almost first thing that happens is a fight over an auction of a Blake Tarot card that turns into a simultaneous locked room mystery and um, uh, heist adventure. And then the next thing that happens is another player joins and decides he wants to play a sentient construct built of bituminous coal which was the moment in which I said, all right, this is no longer a game of subtle magic behind the scenes of 1800 Philadelphia. This is a crazy game. And that's when we started having wolf-headed aliens from uh, the sphere, the, the alchemical sphere of the sun show up, and the Sephiroth started taking an active hand in, in matters. And it just became this uh, sort of insane uh, initiatory spiral up through the tree of life, up through the Sephiroth, uh, to reach Kether to find out the secret origin. Who built this, uh, bituminous coal, uh, android? It is often the case as a, as a GM that you start off thinking, well, this campaign is going to be more contained and serious and the crazy elements are not going to be there like they, they were the last time. This is going to be more, uh, contained, but it's often the, things that the players throw in that suggest that they actually want it to be crazy and, and uh, have this sort of free sense of invention. And that that's actually something they value more than kind of a gritty detail level verisimilitude. There have also been sort of crazy moments where things just sort of come together in what I would call a, a crazy good moment where nobody expected the outcome at the beginning of this uh, scenario that or a session that happens at the end. But when it does happen spontaneously, it all makes amazing sense, and it sort of kicks the whole campaign up into another level. And um, one of those happened in my American Empire game, which I've described previously on the show. Uh, in short, uh, this was a game where the characters uh, were uh, rotated from one episode to the next. So there were two sets of player characters played by the same players. Uh, one week, you would have the players playing the military officers uh, the, the grunts on an alien planet that the uh, uh, American Star Empire had invaded for their resources. And they would discover that the things were going horribly wrong in the war effort and that uh, there was a big disincentive in the system to report anything to uh, up the chain of command to the political level, that the uh, 
Military officers maybe wanted to know what was really going on, but they also wanted to make sure that you gave a different version to the politicians. And then the next session, you would play the politicians back home. And so each week, the players would gleefully switch positions, screwing their other set of characters over for the next week. And uh, in one of the uh, uh, cabinet uh, or secretary level uh uh, sessions, it became increasingly apparent that there was a mole in the high levels of government, uh, an alien uh, lizard person who were the native people of our, uh, this particular planet. And uh, by the end of the session, it became apparent that that was one of the player characters. So the uh, uh, Paul Jackson, the player uh, uh, playing the war secretary, at the very end, tore off the rubber mask, concealing his uh, reptile face, emitted a toxic gas into the war room, and escaped in a rocket. And that was, uh, and at the beginning of the session, that hadn't been set up. There was no um, previous uh, idea that this was happening. We didn't lay pipe for it, except it spontaneously began to lay itself in the course of that episode. And uh, therefore, uh, when it happened, it was a, a real uh, sort of brilliant uh, surprise to everybody that seemed equally delightful to all of us. We had a similar thing actually yesterday in my Unknown Armies game, which is set in the Old West. And uh previously our heroes had uh broken into the uh first uh bank of Northfield Minnesota which had been the target of Jesse James aborted robbery to find out what he'd actually been trying to rob and they discovered that it was a the tip point of the spear of destiny which was surrounded by the crown of thorns um that had been taken away from revolutionary France or pre-revolutionary France right before the revolution and hidden in New Orleans where uh, Benjamin Butler's assistant, uh, adjutant Adelbert Ames, who had been uh, Butler's adjutant there, uh, took it and being a native of Northfield, Minnesota, had removed it to the bank in Northfield. And that is all true except for the part about it actually having been there. Um, but the Adelbert Ames uh, connection is absolutely true. And they did have the spear of destiny and the crown of thorns in France before the revolution and it vanished. So the players had found it there. They had used the spear of destiny to attempt to kill the Confederacy. They thought we'll just kill the Confederacy. We don't like those jerks. Take them out of history. Well, they took them out of history. And as a result, of course, there was no civil war, which meant there were still slaves and uh, Maximilian was in Mexico and it was all terrible. And they were like, oh, well, this will teach us to wish for things. So they needed to figure out how to get home. The Comte de Saint-Germain had been mad at them for an entirely unrelated reason. Uh, they used up the Spear of Destiny, killing the Confederacy. And he says, if you go to New Orleans, I can magically send you home, but I'm going to punish this character who has stepped to me. And they, the other possibility they had is they could go to Roswell, New Mexico, where they had a magic table that they'd built in the previous history to see if it was still there and they could maybe use that. So they're deciding, do we go west where it's hard or east where it's easy, but we give in? And I thought, what a lovely thematic choice I've set up for the players. Surely nothing can possibly uh, either they'll go east and it'll be sort of creepy Southern Gothic or they'll go west. and It'll be cowboys either way, top notch adventure ready for us. And so the players say, hold on. The new player is a narco alchemist. He can make a peyote. He can make a, a shamanic, uh, uh, a trance and we can sort of go up and look into the other world to make sure that it's still there because there's no point trying to get back to our old history if we actually destroyed it. And I thought, well, that'll be fun. It'll be sort of Alan Moore. And so they're preparing all their little ingredients for their shamanic trance. And suddenly one of the players says, hold on, we have the crown of thorns. 
that's plant material. We can, <laughs> we can shoot up. We can make a work. We can make it works. We can shoot up the crown of thorns. I don't see what could go wrong with that at, plan. At that point, that's one of those moments where no, no one had planned it. The, yeah, sure, I'd put, you know, Chekhov's crown of the Chekhov's relic on the mantelpiece, but the part where they grab it down, grind it to powder and burn it and ingest it for psychedelic effect, that was new. And so once you've done, once you've burned up the crown of thorns, then we, of course, you can't go east, can't go west. How about up? So that was, that was the, uh, that was the end result. And you'll be glad to know that. Um, they did, in fact, make it back to the proper history at the cost of only one of their lives. So that was that was good news for everyone. But yes, we're going to um, uh, huff the crown of thorns is not something uh, that I had ever thought to say. Uh, certainly not on a podcast. But there right. you go. So kids at home, next time you get the hand of Vecna, you know, don't don't mess around with it in its current format. Uh, dry it out some more, powdered up mortar and pestle. Snort it. That's the way to go. That's the way to go. Nothing or can go wrong. Make a hand of glory with it. Also, an, another uh, Patreon patron, uh, Alan Wilkins, asked uh, f- uh, to sort of piggyback a bit on this segment and have me talk about the Ikfrom campaign. So very briefly, uh, this is the uh, home campaign that turned into uh, my first book, GURPS Fantasy Two, uh, from Steve Jackson Games. And this is a uh, world of an invented sort of aboriginal level uh, culture in a extremely hostile environment. Uh, and it's hostile because there are uh, terrifying monsters and uh, equally terrifying gods who uh, might from another angle seem benign, but uh, the people in Ikfrom are close enough to them uh, that their uh, malignity and horror shines through. And there's sort of a, a secret in there that I'm not giving away, uh, but the players in my game, unlike the readers of the book, uh, never saw, although they were provided with the material, they never uh, clicked and saw, uh, you know, the secret of those uh, uh, deities. And that campaign was uh, not so much crazy as it was really the first uh, sort of grown up, really thematically connected, character driven uh, campaign that kind of felt like it would, we were making up a, a an exciting a series of novels or a TV show together. And uh, one of the the really uh, sort of big events that kicked that into high gear is where one of the uh, player characters, the player, decided when uh, the rules, which were basically a, a simpler precursor to what wound up being the HeroQuest rules, realized that uh, he was doomed and would rather save everybody else in the group and be killed by the monsters in a heroic self-sacrifice then try to fight back and escape and possibly live and possibly die. And that, uh, and then of course the next session, he had a new character and his new character's relationship to the death of the previous character was a big sort of thematic thread. So that was something that really, uh, that campaign still has a big place in my heart. A lot of people I think have had, uh, challenges, uh, with it as a GURPS book because I think it kind of calls out for a loosier, goosier rule system. And by calling it Fantasy 2, that sort of obscures the fact that really it's survival horror in a fantasy uh, uh, tribal culture. And that if you think of it in that way and think of it as about the character relationships in this world where it is dangerous to leave your village, but it's also dangerous to never leave your village. I, I think that may click in and make it easier to play. So have you, have you heard from other people who've played it, who have had 
crazy fun with it or taken into directions that you didn't anticipate that, you know, do awesome stuff with, with that, uh, with that game and that adventure. Because that's one of the fun things to me is that I, I write something, I send it out there. And then often the ink is not dry on the book before I start seeing people tweeting or, or, or Facebooking or whatever and saying, Hey, you know, this one thing that you did that you spent all this time on, I'm going to turn it on its side and go entirely a different direction with it. And that's kind of the fun, right? Of, of putting it out there for role players as opposed to a novel. I mean, I, I assume people screw around with novels too. In fact, I know that they do, but it, it seems like the act of knowing that this is meant to be disassembled in play anyway uh, is, is more freeing. And so people are like, Oh yeah, I can, I can take this thing and I'm not connected to it in the same way that I feel like, well, I can have Kirk and Spock sleep together, but I have to maintain strict show continuity, right? I, that's something that is, is weirdly connected to, to, to a different universe. Uh, and it's not part of our role playing, but do you have people who, who have sort of used, uh, Madlands, used the Madlands in ways that, that surprise and astonish and delight you? Um, when people describe running, uh, Madlands campaigns, what they describe, uh, seems a lot like, uh, what I ran. But what they, uh, often do when they, uh, disassemble it is to use the terrifying monsters as more conventional monsters in a more conventional, uh, fantasy environment. Cause they're still super, scary and creepy and all themed around the idea of they were people who now have something absent from them. They're skinless or they're boneless. Um, and uh, so people do use the the creatures outside of the, the setting that they were designed for. And I think people like hearing about the uh, games that we ran that later became into products. So to just close out this segment, Ken, do you have a, a, a tale you want to tell from, say, your uh, Knight's Black Agents alpha run? Um, my nice black agents alpha run, uh, was based on the alien stones. Those were the, the, uh, vampires that are in the back of Knights black agents, the, the alien silicon vampires. Um, and a lot of the sort of the, 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 the war stories from that made it into the book because we did a thing in Knights black agents that I called DVD commentary. Um, I stole it from, uh, Chad Underkoffler's a Zorcerer of Zoe, I think was where I first saw it, but he had a thing where he ran the game and then he had people write in the margins what they thought of the game, right? And, and what they did to play it. And I thought that's a terrific idea. And uh, one of my players, uh, Josh, uh, actually did that. And then, uh, John Clayton, uh, who'd run in Simon's Alpha Game, uh, of it contributed some. Simon did some. Kevin Culp did some. I did some. So a lot of the war stories from my Alpha are in the core book, but I can, uh, say that the, um, moment at which the player characters sort of the, the model that I used for, for structuring the game was sort of suddenly expand scope, then take it away, right? Show them the picture, then put everything in darkness so that they would then be trying to piece together what they just seen, try to make sense of it. So that was at the very beginning, they played a bunch of NPC Serbian gangsters who got torn to shreds by a vampire in a Venetian palazzo. And then their real characters saw that on a, on a video bug that they'd planted. And so it's like, you know that this happened. And they're like, that is god awful. We really hate that. And so they, um, uh, uh, they, they'd seen the truth and it was taken away. And so I did that over and over. And at one point they, uh, were in Algeria in the Algerian desert. Uh, hunting down sort of one of these precursor alien stone vampires. And they'd figured out some method. I forget what it was. And they found not quite the alien stone, but it was like the, the, the first casting of it. So it was like a giant Cardiff giant type man buried in this cave. And they thought, well, 
um, we should just collapse the cave and, and bury him in the cave. And so then saner heads prevailed briefly. And they said, no, if we just collapse <laughs> the cave, briefly, he's a, he's a big stone guy in a cave. That's not going to mess him up. He doesn't breathe or anything. Um, we have to, he's in a cave that's kept him alive. We have to destroy the cave around him. We have to take the roof of the cave off. So, you know, lots of ex- explosive rolls later, they do that. And then they said, all right, we've, we've, uh, taken the roof of the cave off. We've exposed this guy to sunlight. When the sun comes up, that'll mess with him. And so they're walking across the desert and, uh, the sun comes up and so does a almost nuclear explosion, like a, a sub, a, a subcritical atomic explosion goes off behind them because of course, once the, the big vampires are exposed to sunlight, they, really let go, right? I, I stole that a little bit from Ultraviolet, where the vampires blow up in the sunlight. They don't just crumble away to dust. And I thought, well, if you've got a super old vampire who's full of alien paraphysics, he's really going to go. He's going to just, you know, the equation is going to solve itself to zero real fast. And so the players standing there seeing their shadows suddenly lengthen in front of them and get all stark uh, and recognizing what that means. Don't turn around. Don't turn around. No one turn around. Um, uh, that was a, a great moment. And the moment immediately after that, where they said, we are now going to assemble all of the information that we've, uh, got on these vampires. And we're going to immediately contact the NSA because we know that the national reconnaissance office has seen that explosion and is going to be asking everyone in Algeria, what the hell? And we need to get on the good side of the American government right now. And also, uh, we have a network contact and, uh, she's played by Rebecca Pigeon. So the the going immediately from setting off a nuclear device by accident to role playing with Rebecca Pigeon that's the sort of rhythm that my players usually try and set for me to keep up with. You know you're in trouble when your handler is Rebecca Pigeon. You do know that. So uh those of you who have not uh, headed over to our uh, Patreon page, patreon.com slash Ken and Robin, can now be motivated to do so in order to gain priority access for your questions just the way that Ross Ireland has done. And on that note, it's time to slink away to our next hop. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of nonstop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used 
used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, can unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the director's handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin. It's theirs. This show also made possible by munificent patrons exactly like... Drew Clory. Rick Neal. Andrew Miller. Adam McDonald. Andrew Scheel. Join their glory-mantled ranks by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com slash Robin. The stovepipe hats, the sound of horse-drawn carriages, and, uh, in this case, uh, the loud, drunken singing of campaign songs that will later be remembered as mere doggerel inform us that we've once more entered the historical precincts of the oh-so-historical history hut. And this time I thought we would do what we sometimes do on the podcast and give you a historical footnote on something that has been uh, glancingly referred to in the news. Ever so glancingly. (laughs) Ever so glancingly. In this case, it involves the uh, current controversy as to uh, whether the Republican Senate has a historical precedent, as opposed to a mere pressing expedient, for refusing to even consider a uh, Supreme Court nominee put forward by uh, President Obama to uh, replace the departed uh, Antonin uh, Scalia. Uh, we'll have more uh, about him uh, later at the end of this episode. But uh, in this context, we're talking about John Tyler. And John Tyler is the president who uh, actually has a lot of firsts and weird historical footnotes uh, surrounding him. Uh, one of those is that he had uh, not just one, but two Supreme Court vacancies that Congress, or the Senate, I guess, refused to consider. His presidency was sometimes referred to as an accidency and has all sorts of interesting uh, bits and bobs in it. So, uh, Ken, where do you want to start in telling the story of uh, President John Tyler, the president without a party, or rather, really, the president whose party really hated him? Well, you start the story of John Tyler the way that all stories of John Tyler start with William Henry Harrison. Uh, William Henry Harrison, the hero of the Battle of Tippecanoe, uh, a beloved uh, uh, log cabin uh, raised frontiersman in the great American unlettered and unwashed tradition uh, was the big favorite to beat President Martin Van Buren in 1840 because the panic of 1837 had cratered the economy. Uh, Martin Van Buren was stuck holding the bag that Andrew Jackson had filled for him with delight. And uh, America was as one singing the song, uh, Tippecanoe and Tyler too will beat little van, the used up man. And, uh, that was such a catchy tune that it, uh, whisked, uh, William Henry Harrison into office. He went out and gave a three hour inauguration speech in the driving, uh, sleet and got pneumonia and died, leaving John Tyler to be the president, the 10th president of the United States, uh, much to the shock of, uh, Henry Clay, who thought, 
that he was going to be uh, manipulating the boob-like William Henry Harrison and being the secret president. <laughs> yes. And suddenly... But Harrison was so boob-like that he uh, made his decisions by having a vote in cabinet and going with however they voted, which was how Henry Clay wanted them to vote. I suspect Henry Clay said that's how they did things. Right. <laughs> well, now that I'm president, what do we do? Well, we're going to have a vote in cabinet, Mr. President. That's how they always do. Oh, well, you're, I guess you know best, Henry Clay. Right. But uh, Henry Clay thought that he was going to be the big deal. And it transpired that uh, when a guy who is a perfectly sound general, but not much of anything else, dies and the um, uh, career politician John Tyler comes in, John Tyler is not interested in just being a sock puppet for Henry Clay. Uh, the downside being Henry Clay was the single most influential Whig in the country and pretty much said, well, if you don't have my cooperation, you don't have anyone's cooperation, which turned out to be a correct prophecy. Right. And Tyler had already established himself as an independent thinker, which is not always welcomed in a political party. <laughs> Traditionally, never. Never. Uh, he'd already been a, a thorn in the side of uh, Andrew Jackson, even though they were two were members of the same party. But he would disagree with him on matters of principle. Uh, in particular, Tyler was a, an original uh, states rights advocate, which in the 19th century means uh, something a little different than it means today. Uh, he was definitely in favor of having uh, strong states uh, linked by a weak uh, federal government and did not necessarily like all of the uh, more uh, power-grabbing things that uh, Jackson uh, got up to. So the result of uh, being up uh, Andrew Jackson's uh, nose for his entire two terms and Martin Van Buren's term is that Tyler found himself no longer a Democrat and a Whig. And once he was a Whig, the Whig party, which uneasily straddled the sectional divide between North and South said, Oh, look, a Southerner who hates Andrew Jackson. Let's make him our vice president. And right. that uh, worked perfectly well up until, as we previously mentioned, he suddenly becomes president. And the first thing that he did was he took the oath of office, which was crazily controversial because people said, well, according to the Constitution, only the powers of the presidency devolve on you, not the office of the vice of the presidency devolves on you. But right, he was like Tyler was the first vice president to take over after the death of a, of a president. Yeah. And so, uh, he takes the oath and insists on being called the president. Uh, he would get mail at the White House, Mr. Vice President John Tyler, and he would return it unopened, uh, because that was, <laughs> that was his way. There's no such person as Vice President uh, John The Tyler. first act of any Congress is to report to the president that Congress is in session. And there was a attempt in both houses of Congress to scratch out the word president from that and, and report to the vice president. Uh, acting as president, uh, that Congress was in session that failed two times. So he basically just sort of forced Congress into admitting that he was president and Congress as traditionally when the president forces it to do something turns out to really hate that and, uh, stop listening to him. Right. And so they not only refused to consider his Supreme court nominees, but they also refused to consider a lot of his cabinet nominees, yes. which is an even more uh, shocking undermining of a, uh, of an administration that the, uh, idea is, you know, yes, you, if someone turns out to be a blatant uh, rogue and, and thief and scumbag, you uh, filter them out. But otherwise, the president should have rather broad latitude in uh, having uh, cabinet appointees, but not so um, for the man uh, without a party who, I guess later he 
created a new party around himself, the Republican Democrat or the D- Democrat Republican. <laughs> he he was basically sort of um, uh, s- uh, stuck for uh, for things to do after the end of his term. He tried to run on his own ticket and discovered that no one liked him. And that was the real problem with running for president, it turns out. Right. Is, is if you have no party and no one likes you, it becomes really hard to do it. Right. Because he, uh, as later vice presidents uh, would also experience, he was uh, put on the uh, ticket as a bit of an afterthought. Uh, he uh, was considered sort of an ambiguous figure around the question of slavery because he acknowledged the evils of slavery, which he could tell by looking around at his household at all the people he owned. Um, and the afterthought nature of his uh, vice presidential campaign can be recalled by uh, this was a campaign that was famous for all sorts of great campaign songs. The idea was to get away from the issues and just run on enthusiasm and drunkenness. And, uh, and so one of the great uh, drinking songs of the campaign, in addition to Tippecanoe and Tyler too, was there's one that had a line, we shall vote for Tyler. Therefore without a why or wherefore, uh, which I think is one of the best political slogans in, in the history of anybody's country. Right. He, uh, he also had another slogan, uh, Tyler and Texas, which was his attempt to uh, force uh, first of all, to try and create a single issue party around the uh, annexation of Texas. And then secondly, to try and build up a groundswell of opinion that would make the Democratic Party and the uh, Whig Party uh, be in favor of the annexation of Texas. Uh, the Democrats were against it primarily because um, he was for it, I think. Uh, <laughs> and uh, also because Texas would have been a slave state. It would have destabilized the uh, the, the the balance that existed in the Senate at the time. Um but uh, he was able, basically, by threatening, uh, by, by creating this groundswell in 1844 to force it to come up during, I guess, the lame duck section uh, session of Congress. So he was able to get the annexation of Texas passed by failing to run for president in, in, uh, successfully in 1844. But Tyler in Texas would be the third great uh, Tyler slogan. Right. So the, the town Tyler, Texas, he's the Tyler. And Tyler he is the Tyler Texas. that makes Tyler, Texas, Tyler, Texas. And uh, other famous footnotes, he's the most fecund of uh american president presidents he had uh i think like seven children by his first wife who uh died in office i think she was the first first lady to die uh, as first lady and then he uh married a young woman who he uh, uh rescued after a uh a gun explosion a famous uh disaster and uh he rescued her and then married her and had a whole pastel of other children uh, with her. Well, he is also the only president to have served in the Confederate Congress, which is the reason that I think that he gets dissed in later historical opinion. Because if the only thing you accomplished was the annexation of Texas, that seems pretty good, right? But he also served in the Confederate Congress. He was buried under the Confederate flag in a state funeral during the Civil War. Uh, and that that sends a bad message if you're a former president to join a passel of traitors. Yes, I think. You're, you're blotting your copybook. You, you do one. indeed blot your copybook. So there are there are there is a historically revisionist movement afoot to remind people that, for example, when uh, the government of Rhode Island wanted to, uh, there, there was unrest because the people of Rhode Island were noticing that their state constitution had been written in 1663 and perhaps could stand a little updating so that more than nine people could vote or whatever. There was almost a shooting war over there. That. There was there was indeed almost a shooting war, and the government of Rhode Island asked. Tyler to send federal troops. And he said he would send federal troops once uh, to put down insurrection, not to repress insurrection, which I think is a nice 
beautiful middle of the road point. <laughs> yes, I don't believe in insurrection, but I do believe in the right to scare the bejesus out of the state of Rhode Island first. Yeah, uh, and so the state of Rhode right Island right up there with conscription, if necessary, but not necessarily conscription, but not necessarily conscription. But and so the state of Rhode Island uh, did indeed put down the insurrection with their own state militia, but then they basically sort of agreed to whatever the insurrectors wanted. So that was that was a nice touch, I think. In you know, in terms of things to send federal troops in. Uh, Rhode Island's constitution maybe not as critical as South Carolina trying to nullify uh, federal legislation. So, and did you run across the road overseer story in your uh, researches? Tell me the road overseer okay, story. Okay, so th this is a great detail. So after he retires as president, goes back home to Virginia, his neighbors would like to indicate to him just how little they think of him, and so they sarcastically appoint him overseer of the local road. He takes this seriously because he's never one to uh, to not take the full advantage of a title uh, ahead of him. And so all of a sudden, they made him overseer of the local road. And so he starts uh, uh, requiring uh, them to uh, bring their laborers to keep repairing the road and keeps bossing them around around the road. And they keep they launch an effort to get him uh, made no longer the overseer of the road. And he digs his heels in and remains... Uh, at least in his mind, overseer for the road for a good long time. So even that uh, stick of the knife is something that he uh, uh, uses to uh, turn against them. But again, suggests the incredible low esteem in which he was uh, held. So when you uh, hear that story of, uh, you know, there was a time when uh, the Senate refused to confirm two people. Well, now you know just... Uh, who they were dealing with. And there they refused to confirm four people. Right. There, there were two empty slots and he put up a whole bunch of, of uh, candidates yeah. for it. Uh, the other, the other uh, fun thing that uh, is maybe Cartas relevant, although maybe not fun Cartas relevant is the Webster Ashburton treaty, which is uh, carried out by his secretary of state, Daniel Webster, and is the treaty that it created the border with Canada, basically that sort of set up the borders between America and Canada and agreed that we were not going to have a bunch of uh, crazy shooting wars over the topic. Uh, we would start to demilitarize the great lakes, uh, saving everyone a great deal of money and trouble and laid the, the groundwork for the Treaty of Washington, which was done under Ulysses S. Grant, which uh, created the American-Canadian alliance and agreement that everyone gets their half of the continent that basically has set the, the two great republics on the train of brotherly friendship that they enjoy today. That's why uh, most of our uh, of the world's longest undefended border is nice and straight and easy to draw. Exactly, because it was drawn by... Webster and Ashburton, who were busy men with other stuff to do. Right. Um, so uh, I guess this uh, this uh, uh, illuminates that footnote and uh, suggests what might happen if somebody whose uh, affiliations with the party that he's running with uh, are, are are loose and he gets into uh, uh, the uh, White House and there aren't that many people who feel a sense of loyalty to him. So who knows? There could be more historical parallels ahead. Even yet, although one doubts that anyone currently running would serve in the Confederate Congress. But write in with your suggestions. Yes, well, one hopes not. One hopes not. <laughs> Things will have gotten even worse yes. if, that, if that happens. <laughs> and on that terrifying note, uh, let's, let's do a commercial and move on to our next segment.
You love dice. Dice love you. Now, finally, you can display this mutual love affair to the jealous gaze of admiring friends. With dice, rendezvous with randomness. A gorgeous coffee table art photo book all about dice. The most adventurous project yet from our friends at Askfagelm. Explore every side of dice through the brilliant lens of photographer Mans Daneman. After hours of photography, real, actual, no Photoshop photography, you can gaze at wonder at burning dice, fireworks melty dice, oiled dice, laser dice, rainbow making dice, kaleidoscope dice, Cthulhu dice that, with the aid of an octopus, lashed out at the photographer's knee and sent him to surgery. And generally, dice, dice, dice. Want highlight photos as posters, canvas or gallery prints? Ask Fagelm has you covered. With their Kickstarter, Dice Rendezvous with Randomness. Go to Kickstarter and search Dice Rendezvous with Randomness. It's time for the first time for a new segment here on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Ken and Robin Tell You More, or just Tell Me More, as we jauntily abbreviate it. A segment created by our Patreon patrons and made possible by them for you. Robin, tell us more about Tell Me More. So the idea is, uh, as you may be familiar with our old segment, The Recommendation Engine, well, we put the engine in the garage and replaced it with Tell Me More. So uh, as you've noticed, uh, if you are a uh, Patreon uh, backer or perhaps if you just uh, follow our RSS feed, uh, we've started a new feature uh, backed by our patrons called Ken and Robin Consume Media, in which we uh, write uh, little capsule reviews, uh, dropping mostly on Tuesday, but we don't guarantee always Tuesday, just uh, once a week mostly, in which we uh, give little quick reviews of uh, books and movies and TV seasons, and I uh, reviewed a bottle of wine a couple of weeks ago. Um, and uh, then it, you, uh, as patrons, are encouraged to comment on the post as it appears on the Patreon site, and let us know which ones you would like to hear more about. And the ones that seem to get a bit more interest, we will indeed uh, expand upon here in this Tell Me More segment. And uh, Ken, what is the first uh, capsule review that I will be expanding upon? Our first capsule review on Tell Me More is your review of The Secret History of Wonder Woman by Jill Lepore. Wonder Woman is not by Jill Lepore. The Secret History is by Jill Lepore. Wonder Woman is by... The delightful William Moulton Marston, who is the kind of person who, if you didn't know for sure existed, you would suspect Robin or I of making up just to pad out a segment. So, Robin, tell us about the madcap William Moulton Marston. Right. So, he was uh, born in 1893. He died in 1947. And he was, uh, I think, a classic American character who had his uh, uh, fingers in a lot of uh, different uh, pies. Uh, he was uh, sort of a, a huckstrish figure, but he was a trained psychotherapist as well as a, a lawyer and uh, an entrepreneur, obviously, and wound up, uh, as far as pop culture is concerned, creating uh, one of the enduring geek culture characters of all time, uh, Wonder Woman. And he's very much unlike and was very separate from the core group of comics creators that you uh, we think of today. And uh, what Lepore does is, he, is she researches uh, his life. So it's basically a biography of him and the people around him and looks at the way that his life informed uh, Wonder Woman. And it turns out to inform it pretty 
uh, close in parallel in a lot of instances. Uh, the, For example, he was built of clay by a goddess. <laughs> well, he, I think he would be happy to have been built by clay uh, from a goddess. Uh, so, for example, a lot of the uh, characters are uh, people that he or uh, other people around him knew. Etta Candy is... Well, let me talk about his family situation. So, <laughs> he was uh, married to a woman named Elizabeth Holloway Marston. Uh, he was steeped in feminism, the first wave feminism of the early part of the last century, and uh, was uh, a big believer along with his wife, Elizabeth uh, Holloway Marston. She was mostly the family breadwinner, and he had a variety of different uh, projects and careers. He uh, taught... Uh, psychology, although uh, increasingly because he was uh, prone to oddball uh, sort of publicity stunt activities, he found his uh, teaching options uh, diminishing increasingly. Uh, he uh, is uh, also known for the uh, invention of the lie detector, which we'll get to in a bit. But he uh, lived in an unconventional family relationship with uh, his wife and uh, another woman, his, uh, she started as a student. Her name was uh, Olive Byrne. She was the niece of Margaret Sanger, the uh, famed uh, feminist and birth control advocate. And he had uh, two children with uh, his wife, uh, two children with Olive Byrne. Uh, they did not know that he was their father. There was a story about a uh, father who had briefly been there but then died. And they lived together in this uh, arrangement. Uh, Elizabeth... Uh, exceeded to this if Olive would raise all of the children, allowing her to continue her career. And so, for example... I love the sort of um, uh, self-actualization of that decision. Yeah. Well, on the one hand, I have to share William Moulton Marston, but on the other hand, woohoo, I'm out of the house! <laughs> um, and there's a, a, another woman as well who uh, occasionally came to visit, who became uh, part of the, uh, the group. They were all, at uh, one point, members of a uh, Uranian sex ritual uh, cult or organization. Uh, I think the uh, accent was more on the sex than on the uh, ritual, but it, it sounds a, a bit like... It's uh, all your best sex cults do murder. it that way, Robin. Pardon me? All your best sex cults do it that way. Yes. The, the ones you would, you would want to belong to. You just, you just make up the ritual to fit whatever it is you wanted to do that day anyway. Well, that is exactly what they did. Um, scholars of Wonder Woman have often tried to divine the extent to which the frequent, one might say, incessant appearance of uh, bondage imagery in the Marston-written comics was part of a feminist political message or reflected a, a personal sexual predilection, and the answer is both. You can find those images throughout uh, early feminist uh, polemics, uh, referring to the chaining of uh, women by uh, uh, male-dominated society, but uh, he was very, very interested in that and in male submission, which seems a little dictatorial somehow, uh, and so uh, his scripts for the comics, uh, they went into the maximum amount of detail about exactly what each chain or rope or what it looked like and how it was positioned and everything. Uh, the other creator of Wonder Woman uh, would have been the uh, illustrator, H.G. Peters. People who look at the old original Wonder Woman comics note that they look very different from even the, you know, crudest other comics of the era. And that's because H.G. Peters uh, began his career uh, doing cartoons for uh, feminist pamphlets and newspapers and was plucked from that job by Marston to draw Wonder Woman. And uh, I've never particularly loved that style, which is kind of awkward and makes the characters are supposed to be 
uh, appealing look kind of grotesque, but uh, he insisted on keeping uh, Peters around, and Peters was kept around until he died uh, just after the war. So it's a really fascinating cultural history and also a fascinating uh, family history that covers a lot of uh, detail that we previously, uh, until Laporte did her uh, research and got access to family documents. And the ebook version has an addendum with even more information that came to light after the publication of the original hardcover. So it's a fascinating look at how a, a very complicated unconventional uh, private life informed uh, what is, you know, become one of the great iconic characters. Uh, the lie detector thing is also interesting <laughs> in I was, that. I was wondering if you were going to get to that since yeah. uh, we were going to get lots of emails if you didn't. Uh, so he did not invent the polygraph. Uh, he invented what might be called the unigraph. He called it the lie detector. His machine only paid any attention to uh, blood pressure. And he himself, whenever he conducted the interview and used his equipment, got close to, he got something like a 97% success rate. And even given his sort of hucksterish inclinations, this seems to be accurate. But no one else came anywhere close to getting his results from his machine. And another inventor, uh, his rival, came along and created the polygraph, which measures a bunch of different things. And uh, as far as we can determine today, has very little actual usefulness. And that's, of course, why it's never been uh, accepted as, as evidence in court. And of course, the uh, that's another example of how the lie detector uh, winds up in the comic books, because one of Diana Prince's powers is to compel honesty from the uh, uh, weird array of uh, villains that she faces. She'll rope somebody up in her lariat, and then they have to uh, testify absolutely accurately. So the, those early comics... Uh, have uh, essentially tons of one-to-one parallels to uh, the life of Marston and his family. Uh, next up, we have uh, something that you mentioned. You put it in our coveted pinnacle slot, the best of the best. Uh, and this is the Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible, a massive reference tome that you've referenced on multiple occasions. Uh, tell us more about it. Uh, this began um, in 1996 was the first uh, edition of it. It was done by a pack of biblical scholars, among them Carl Vander Torn, Bob Becking, and Peter Vander Horst, but it also had uh, a bunch of sort of expert editors, about a hundred of them, including Hans Dieter Betts, of the University of Chicago, the es- expert on the Egyptian magical papyri, which by themselves must have contributed a whack of uh, deities and demons, or at least of information about the deities and demons. What it fundamentally is, is 960 pages in which literally every deity or demon mentioned in the Bible or the Apocrypha is given their own entry. And a lot of things that you would not think of as deities or demons, such as the planet Saturn or the Pleiades or any number of things. So, Robin, um, why don't you give me a deity or demon in the Bible, and we will explore a typical entry. I've always had a, a soft spot for the, the behemoth. So, the standard uh, entry starts with the specific biblical sites. So, uh, the behemoth or behemoth appears in Job, uh, chapter 40. He is not... A natural animal, says the editors of Deities and Demons in the, in the Bible. They say no, he is a, a mythological creature. Um, and then they give you the, de- the derivation of his name. So, Behemoth is the feminine plural of Bechamah, 
meaning beast or ox. The collective means beasts or cattle. And, um, uh, however, in Job, although it's a feminine word, the, uh, grammar is that it is male and single. And that's how you tell just behemoth, meaning a bunch of cows from behemoth, meaning the behemoth, that dude. Right, so, um, the, the bunch of cows version is, is not particularly alarming. Not as impressive. No, if, if, if God can command a bunch of cows, that's cool, but he's just, he just becomes like Pecos Bill or somebody, which is, you know, fine. Then part two, uh, in every entry talks about this, the sort of, uh, outside evidence, uh, for Behemoth, if he's worshiped by anybody else or, uh, the sort of general discussion of Behemoth in a historical cultural setting. And it turns out, nope, he's just out of the Bible. Um, if there is any mention of Behemoth, uh, that, uh, uh, is made outside of the Bible, it is probably taken from the, uh, from Job, not from outside. Although being a comprehensive dictionary, it calls attention to one argument by one scholar, uh, that says that there is a Ugaritic myth of a giant bull called Gliltik or Gliltik, Al Gliltik, who is the, um, uh, furious bullock of L, according to this scholar. Although, according to the encyclopedia, it's L's calf Atik. So it, that would be like a giant magical bull owned by Baal, owned by the sky god. Um, so that would be like, uh, the bull in the myths of Mith- Mithras, or it might be the, um, uh, a bull of heaven in Gilgamesh, or it might just be like, uh, babe, the blue ox. It just might be the, the awesome cow that the awesome figure of Baal, uh, has. So you go through that whole thing, uh, with all the, you know, outside evidence and the, and the scholarship on what behemoth means. And of course there are a million arguments about it from various people trying to interpret because it's in because the Bible. It's the Bible. <laughs> There's been lovely fights about it. And the best thing about this encyclopedia is there's always more sources of the fight. Uh, part three is, uh, wherever, uh, behemoth might be mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. There's not a lot. Um, there is an, uh, oracle in Isaiah 30, and there is, uh, a line in the Psalms where God, uh, says, I have been a beast with you. Um, and that may mean that God has been like unto the behemoth as opposed to just God will, you know, trample you if you don't get it straight. Um, and so, uh, the Oracle, interestingly, is against Behemoth as a, a monster, uh, the beast of the Negev, and is implied as some sort of uh, bad thing that lives out in the desert that uh, God is going to threaten. And so you have sort of different uh, treatments of Behemoth. And uh, there's another, a number of other even more tenuous arguments that someplace where the word beast appears in the Bible, they actually mean uh, Behemoth. And then Part four is an immense bibliography, much of it in German, on every major mention of Behemoth. So you wind up with, for Behemoth himself, about four and a half pages of entry. So you can get a sense of how how, uh, rigorous and deep the whole thing goes. It was published, I think, for around a 100 bucks. I found it remaindered for, I think, 30. And uh, and bought it... uh, and have never regretted that ever since. Uh, there's all manner of things in there that are uh, wonderful, including um, uh, the cat goddess Bast, who you would not have thought appears in the Bible at all, except, of course, in uh, Ezekiel, it mentions uh, Pibeseth, the town of Bast, 
Uh, and so there you are. She's in the Bible, so we win. Right. And we'll get to a lot more on Bast uh, next week. But let's uh, focus on how you would use this as uh, as a game designer. We know that uh, biblical scholars will use it to do bi- biblical scholarship. But let's say that you found uh, in your uh, connections uh, uh, somewhere, uh, let's say there's a, a, I don't think there is, but let's say for the sake of argument, there is a reference to uh, Behemoth in Bram Stoker. How would you then... Uh, take that reference and then use this book and come up with gaming goodness. The thing that you do is you, uh, because there are so many different versions of what Behemoth is, you pick the one that you want to apply to a vampire. So for Behemoth, you have this tradition that it's the beast of the Negev. There's something out of the first book of Enoch, which uh, mentions that Behemoth is a male monster dwelling in a hidden desert of Dundayan, east of Eden. So we know that he's connected to Cain because that's where Cain goes, east of Eden. And so already we've got Behemoth is a monster who lives out in the desert. Cain goes out in the desert. We've got a Cain and Behemoth connection there. Behemoth is attached to the notion of unending food. Uh, There's an argument in Second Baruch that he will be uh, slaughtered at the end times and feed all of the people. But obviously that's a, a pious reinterpretation of the fact that Behemoth is this monstrous entity that grants vampirism, grants the power to uh, to feast forever. Um, and you, you just sort of drive further and further into this. Since Behemoth is depicted as a hippopotamus, you can tie him into Amemet, the eater of the dead, which is part a hippopotamus. And also um, uh, the god Set is depicted as a hippopotamus sometimes. So you now have a dark god uh, who's lurking around the Egypt, which is another great vampire place, at least according to Anne Rice, and why not? So you can draw all of these sort of interpretations like magnetic filings. You just pull on them until they all point to what you actually want people to believe, which is that Behemoth is a giant uh, vampire monster or the beast whose blood perhaps provides uh, the vampiric communion that Cain drank from to uh, found the line of vampires. And so this could be some uh, actual living creature that you can find somewhere. You can go down into the desert and, and beneath it and find the secret crypt where your vampire enemies are uh, feeding off a of behemoth in order to uh, restore themselves. Or uh, it may be, you know, one of those Dracula get out of death free cards. You've killed Dracula once and now his uh, acolytes are uh, taking the desiccated bones and dust to this crypt in the desert in order to pour the blood of behemoth onto them and then reconstitute him. And that can be, you know, yet another way in your scenario that you justify bringing uh, Dracula back. Uh, well, I guess it's time to move on to our uh, final item. I reviewed Deadpool. I quite liked it. And uh, people wanted to hear more about it, particularly about the use of sort of fourth wall breaking dialogue in a role-playing context. And the difficulty with that is that there is already so much fourth wall breaking dialogue (laughs) in a a given session that uh, I think that your challenge in uh, role-playing is kind of the opposite. And I think one of the appeals of Deadpool is that he's sort of, he is meta in the way that people playing their characters in a game are meta. And that's uh, one of the things that's sort of fun about the original character. Now, for example, in the uh, my most recent uh, Hillfolk session, uh, right at a big dramatic uh, moment of the episode, uh, a couple of the players just suddenly uh, made a pop culture reference and then were just followed that trail as the geek mind does. And I had to sort of, oh, oh, 
Come on, play the scene, play the scene. So I, I think it's hard. I, you could do something sort of like the tagline system in The Guy in Reach and in The Dying Earth, where uh, your character might have a power that's connected to his ability to do uh, some sort of uh, flip uh, fourth wall comment. And if it's actually funny, if it actually gets a big response in the room, maybe you get uh, something of a bonus. Or you just have to say something in order to, to activate that power. Or perhaps that becomes a NPC ability to know that they're in a role-playing game and, um, uh, you know, uh, say things like, um, oh, I really heard the dice clatter on that one. Did you decide to go along with me this time? Or something like that. And perhaps, uh, although one hesitates to suggest any uh, improvement is ever possible in this fallen world, um, recognizing the annoying behavior of your Deadpool or ambush bug uh, sound alike might impel the players to say, no, no, let's stick to the game. Let's not keep breaking the fourth wall all the time like that jerk NPC does. I enjoyed the movie a good deal. I, I took uh, Sheila to go see it because she... Uh, is still trying to make up for having dragged me to see Green Lantern, I guess. Um, and, uh, I, you know, it's an appropriate, uh, bit of, uh, remorse, uh, to, to have a good Ryan Reynolds. Superhero it's, it's a start. Uh, it's a straight to beginning. Um, there is, there's a long r- walk back from making me see Green Lantern, <laughs> Robin. Um, but the, uh, but I, I enjoyed the fact that they managed to take a completely straightforward story and present it in a, a uh, way that did not leave you bored by superhero exposition as the first uh, third of virtually all superhero movies does. And I enjoyed sort of the kinetic choreography of the movie. And I thought that, again, um, although I am too old to have ever been a Deadpool fan and stopped being a Marvel reader uh, before Deadpool started being a thing, uh, Ambush Bug is my uh, fourth wall breaking comic annoyance, um, not Deadpool. But I thought that they captured sort of the spirit of the comics of, of a comic book spirit, as well as uh, the Marvel cinematic universe in a pretty clever way. And they did it all for what? $60 million, which is amazing. Right. Although I guess I, I'm hearing a lot of, well, actually, it's actually in the, the Foxomatic universe. It's, oh, right. Yeah. It's part of the uh, X-Files, X, uh, X-Files cinematic bubble, universe. Right, yes. Sorry. My apologies. Yes. The, the <laughs> thing that really works about the film is not, so much that the fourth wall stuff is there, although that's fun, is that with something that is so hyper-violent and with such a uh, sort of a rude, crass sense of humor, that all of those things could have very easily gone south because they would tend to uh, pull you towards something that is cruel or cynical. But actually, the characters, the key characters, all have a lot of affection for each other, and you care about them. And, you know, it's a lot of the uh, emotional pull of the story is the... Uh, central uh, relationship between uh, Deadpool and his uh, and his uh, girlfriend and also the uh, pal in the bar played by TJ Miller that there's a real affection between them and they actually you know really kind of uh, love each other and you know even the hitman denizens of that bar all step up to help that character when there's a, a moment of distress and for something that is so edgy there's an underlying a cushion of uh, goodwill and sympathy that makes that work where, you know, I was imagining when this first came out that it could go wrong in a lot of different ways because mm-hmm. there are a lot of really sort of essentially kind of sour, crass, unpleasant uh, movies that are marketed as, as edgy, but this was marketed as edgy, but actually it has a, a warm marshmallow heart that makes it all work. And, and how good was Leslie Uggams? Yes. 
Yes, she was she was great. And even there, like, even though there's a lot of harsh banter between them, again, there's a real sort of affectionate relationship, and they didn't, you know, gratuitously kill off any sympathetic characters for shock value the way that you see so often in these uh, films. And uh, it uh, and, and I think essentially that that is what makes and even the relationship with Colossus, yeah. right? Even the, the straight man con- is not made a joke, although a lot of things about Colossus are made jokey or made fun of but colossus himself retains his integrity he's not just someone that deadpool can look uh, uh great in front of yes and he's he's not there to uh you know to be a jerk that he has a you know he is a real uh, idealistic streak and all of his actions are in a way and you know he's trying to uh help deadpool and help the world and uh there's, uh, you know, there's a, that character is affectionately drawn. Even the, the secondary villainess is kind of affectionately well, drawn. Well, it's Gina it's Carano, just, so who who wouldn't affectionately draw Gina Carano, I ask yes. you. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, that's what makes uh, uh, Deadpool uh, work, and it's uh, the fourth wall stuff is fun, but it's that more central key point of pop culture narrative is, is what really uh, fuels it. So that's our first uh, Tell Me More segment. Uh We'll be doing them a little more frequently than Recommendation Engine, but it won't take over the show. So uh, whenever you see, as a patron, the uh, Ken and Robin Consume Media post arrive, if there's something that you want to hear us expand upon in this segment, uh, comment on that post or just like somebody else's comment on that post if they also want to hear from us. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolsey frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... You can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly, or tales from failed anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. And now it's time for a segment we don't do often on the show because current events don't provide inspiration for it on a consistent basis but when it does boy howdy it's time for nerd tropes in the news we don't have uh awesome uh newsroom music or a teletype noise but that was me right but but it's such an awesome segment we have a theme song as you just heard and everything so what happens is is sometimes reality throws up 
two uh, historic and or weird or geeky details in a weird juxtaposition, just the way that the nerd trope cards that we use uh, when we do a live episode uh, tease can into uh, finding the hidden weirdness between two putatively unrelated elements. And this time, those elements relate to the passing of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, who uh, passed away while on vacation in a hunting lodge in Texas. And it turned out that, and there's some kind of meaner, nastier conspiracy theories that were uh, spooled out from his demise. We're not going to truck with those, I don't think. But it did turn out that he was there as uh, part of his membership of a group called the International Order of St. Hubertus, uh, which is a a secret society. I don't know how secret it is. They have a web page. <laughs> well, that's, that's how a proper secret society maintains the secret now. Exactly. Through a, a placid exterior of uh, uh, public normalcy. Um, and also, this happens to be near the site of uh, near Marfa, Texas, famous among elliptinists as the home of the Marfa Light. So this gives us our two real-life nerd trope cards, the International Order of St. Hubertus, and the Marfa Lights. Ken, that's your cue. Go! Okay, the International Order of St. Hubertus is a secret society uh, created for the pleasures of the hunt. And this is for true. You can look it up. It's about uh, hunting as a means of uh, joining together men of great influence and power. The hunting is, I think, more central than building things is for the Freemasons. I don't think the Freemasons ever get together and put up a building and, and, uh, do, uh. That's a lot more work than being a do, Freemason. Do upper middle class uh, deals. I think that this is aristocrats who get together and actually hunt and put together deals. I do want to mention that it is founded in 1695 by Count Franz Anton von Spork, who may have one of the best names ever. I, I would did say he, he does he, have. He didn't invent the he spork. May he? or may not have invented the spork. I think that's a secret. I think that would be one of the secrets of the secret society. Uh, the original uh, symbol of the uh, of the of the Society of Saint Hubertus has the hunting horn on it. The current one just has a bland Maltese cross, as if to uh, tell you nothing to see here. No creepy horns, a la the uh, secret uh, post. Uh, Office of the Holy Roman Empire, the Thurn in Texas, that as all true Pinchonites know, is engaged in a, a war against the ragtag anarchists of Tristero. So who knows what might be up with that? I think that the uh, secret order of, of St. Hubertus is, is obviously the where the elite meet to uh, hunt meat and then eat meat, I presume. It is connected to the Bohemian Grove in uh, San Francisco. That is the uh, American version of the Order of St. Hubertus, the American chapter is the Bohemian Grove. So if you, I think we've mentioned the giant owl and, uh, uh, all, and Ambrose Bierce and all the other magical things that connect to that, right? Yeah. So that, this gets us into the heart of conspiracy theory. Um, so we have, uh, the Bohemian Grove with its giant owl. We have the Order of St. Hubertus with its secret post horn and the deer, uh, which has, um, uh, the image of Christ in between its antlers. If you look at the uh, image of St. Hubertus, he is often shown near a deer and the deer will have the, the glowing uh, figure of Christ up there above his head. And when you have a glowing figure, we are now in Marfa lights territory. The Marfa lights are ghost lights. Uh, they appear south uh, west of Mar- Marfa, Texas out in the vast uh, empty plains of Presidio County, the, the scrub and the dirt and such. Uh, they appear over some mountains, usually, um, and they zoom around, and your boring scientist types say they're reflections of car headlights, which, 
Does not necessarily explain how they were seen in 1883 by cowboys, but, you know, I'm sure that scientists have come up with some brilliant explanation for that. Well, that, that's their job, to, that's to their bail job, out the Marfa lights. To be all sciencey. It's also, as it turns out, near a uh, army airfield in the 40s, which may explain the Marfa light sightings of the late 40s, at least. But uh, the true explanation for the Marfa lights is that they are the band uh, of Apaches, of Mescalero Apaches, led by Alsate, who is one of the uh, Apache uh, hero chieftains who uh, rebelled against, in this case, uh, both Texas and Mexico, and was eventually captured uh, by the Mexican uh, military and executed uh, in Mexico. And of course, because he was so badass and so boss, and his troop of uh, Mescaleros was so boss, they wound up haunting the, the, the Chiniati Mountains there, where the Marfa lights are seen, as ghosts. And the connection between Alsate's ghosts and the Order of St. Hubertus is, of course, the wild hunt. The magical uh, uh, phenomenon by which a huntsman, an unknown huntsman, who in this case obviously would be St. Hubertus, but is often Wotan or the devil or a Cornish count for some reason, or the uh, one or another German warlord, which perhaps connects you up to the Thurn and Texas aspect of the Order of St. Hubertus. But the Order of St. Hubertus is the earthly recruiting arm of the Wild Hunt. And when a a soul that is extraordinarily powerful and pugnacious is about to die, <laughs> the Order of St. Hubertus brings it to one of the seven mystical ghost light sites that it knows that it is hunted out, and it escorts that soul up into the sky to become one of the um uh, the 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 ghost riders who pursue the wild hunt and hunt down souls for the unknown purposes of Count Franz Anton von Spork, who of course lives forever between both life and death, just as his eponymous piece of cutlery is forever between spoon and fork. And that, my friend, is the secret message of the International Order of St. Hubertus and or the Marfalites. So is the the Wild Hunt uh, split five to four? Uh the Wild Hunt now is split five to four. Previously it was Evenly balanced between those who wished, who, who believed in a uh, expansive and um, uh, and changing interpretation of the commandments of Votan, and those who believed that only the runes carved on the spear matter. So I can uh, see no greater tribute to, to uh, Scalia, who I know you admire, than for you to make him uh, uh, forever part of the uh, Wild Hunt. Uh, how does that become a scenario for uh, a modern weirdness game? Well, for a modern weirdness game, what you you probably wind up wanting to do is have the characters um, uh, run into uh, the, the wild hunt in some other context. And then as they look at the face of one of the huntsmen who appears to them, possibly because they have not been fully subsumed into the sky, they recognize some influential figure who has just died. Uh, Justice Scalia, perhaps. Pure or, applesauce, exclaims or, the ghostly figure of the wild hunt. Exactly. What argle bargle have you brought me? Exactly. Um, and so that provides them with a connection, and then they either can go researching the wild hunt and figure out rituals to call the wild hunt to them so they can interrogate this uh, th this figure that may have knowledge of some other conspiracy, um, or that lets them know that somehow people are being translated into the wild hunt, even in modern times, and they go after the Order of St. Hubertus, which has the specific hunt rituals necessary to um, uh, allow, and it's, it's a member perhaps even that might, that they know is going to die already. And so they're like, we just have to make sure that he dies 
you know, near the ghost lights so that he can be summoned up into the wild hunt. And maybe they're trying to make sure that their, their own beloved cult leader, who is uh, perhaps on the verge of death through something the characters have done, is going to be uh, pulled up into the wild hunt and the characters have to stop it because the last thing they want is for their enemy to be able to show up with an army of, of ghostly wolves and horsemen and, and chase them down. Right. Right. Uh, and because the wild hunt is, is not usually, they're depicted as eerie, but not necessarily evil or, or threatening. It, it varies usually. by the story. I mean, sometimes yeah. they're evil and sometimes they're good and sometimes, and always they're eerie. Right. I, I do sort of like the idea of them as sort of your supernatural psychopomp characters that you uh, encounter them early in the scenario and you get information. Maybe there's a, a bit of a red herring where initially you think they might be the threat. Uh, but you encounter them, and then you find out that they are uh, uh, scary, but uh, as supernatural entities go relatively benign, and they steer you in the right direction. And in that scene, if you handle them properly, there is the option that you will impress them, and they, they can uh, show up at, at, as the cavalry uh, when the characters get into trouble, and then all of a sudden, here come the wolves and the stags, and the wild hunt comes to uh, put paid to your enemies and uh, also freak you out. You still have to make a sanity roll or stability mm-hmm. check or what have you, but there's uh, they're uh, within the boundaries of their driving you slightly insane. Uh, they are uh, kind of uh, kind of groovy and cool. And you can also play the awesome. Uh, Johnny Cash uh, version of uh, Ghost Riders in the Sky, if you wish to uh, keep there you that go. cowboy western approach. I should also mention, in the spirit of uh, my many hats, that if you wish a trans a trans world migratory wild hunt, you should check out uh, it- GURPS Infinite Worlds Collegio Januari, in which I have a medieval or fantasy themed alternate history game set out for your delectation. So hunt yourself up that on the Steve Jackson Games website, and enjoy. Well, uh, that sounds like a plug, and so that sounds like the uh, end of yet another exciting episode of the award-winning... The golden, the multiple award-winning... Yes, Ken and Robin talk about stuff, so we'll uh, catch you next week, and uh, you've already been teasered. They'll be, uh, we'll be talking about Bast and much, much more. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Dice. Rendezvous with Randomness. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Stand shoulder to shoulder with such August patrons as... Ethan James. Isaac Priestley. James Pearson. Linda and Mike Schiffer. And Philip Masters. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>